0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
1: Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a now not-so-new podcast from Condé Nast Traveller that digs deep into the realities of traveling as a woman today and celebrates why we'll never stay home. And we're back after like a long,
2: a long break. You were hiking uh, with Judy Wineland, who uh, listeners would have heard from a couple weeks ago in our
1: Adventure Travel podcast. Yes, it was me, Judy, and a group of women I'd never met before, and I discovered that Everyone goes to onsens in Japan, which meant that I had to get naked with a bunch of women I'd never met before. Which is <laughs> <laughs> this is the one takeaway from your trip. No, it really is. It's that's what I'm telling everyone. But it was, it was, yeah, it was incredible. Um, and I'm no hiker, and um, seeing that part of Japan as my introduction to that country was amazing and surreal and weird. And I ate weird food in the mountains and hiked with a mountain priestess and met free divers down on the coast and yeah it was crazy everyone will be inundated with stories that i plan to write (laughs) perfect and you were meredith you were in austin i was in austin i was back in texas uh my homeland
2: um not on a very exciting trip i was there for a friend's birthday ate so much barbecue ate japanese barbecue um at Lolly and my favorite restaurant in austin kumori tatsuya shout out um but let's get to today
1: Yes, so for our latest episode, we're chatting with award-winning journalist and author Kim Barker about life as a foreign correspondent. From 2004 to 2009, Kim was South Asia Bureau Chief for the Chicago Tribune, based out of Delhi and Islamabad, and her book, The Taliban Shuffle, Strange Days in Afghanistan and Pakistan, was turned into the 2016 movie, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, starring Tina Fey. And nowadays she's back in the U.S. with us as Metro reporter for the New York Times. Hi, Kim. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm very excited to have you in today. I'm a big fan of your book. Great. I I as well (laughs) am excited to be here. Excellent.
2: (laughs) My actual first question before we like really deep dive is like how exciting was it to have Tina Fey play you in a movie?
3: I mean it was it's funny because it was actually the answer to the BuzzFeed que- feed question that I got <laughs> as to what celebrity would p- play you in the movie of your life. That's actually who I got in doing it and then she was actually starring as me oh in the gosh. movie. So what if all BuzzFeed quizzes came true? I know. Oh I know it's a, an existential question <laughs> right there.
1: That means that I would be Joe March from Little Women which I'd be very very happy with.
2: <laughs> Um, For listeners who are unfamiliar with your work, can you just start telling us a little bit about how you became a foreign correspondent um, and ended up covering the war in Afghanistan?
3: Yeah, it was not planned. Uh, it was <laughs> I was an accidental war correspondent. I, I joined the Chicago Tribune in the beginning of 2001, and when the attacks of 9/11 happened, uh, I, I really was just like a metro reporter, and nobody really knew who I was. But I knew that that was the biggest story in the world, and that what was going to happen after 9/11 was the biggest story. And I was really determined to be able to, you know, cover part of it and and like be part of one of the biggest stories I knew of my lifetime. So. um I had heard that they were looking to send uh, some women overseas because pretty much uh, most of the folks that they had tried out overseas in the beginning were all men, and the editor was a woman, and she sort of offhandedly said in a meeting, you know, um, can we send some women overseas? Why, why are we sending so many men? So um, I was told by uh, these guys I had lunch with who were the old men of science, like, to, to throw my hat into the ring. And so basically I stalked the foreign editor and waited outside his office and, you know, went in when there was an opening and said, you know, my name is Kim Barker. I'm a Metro reporter for the newspaper. I'm willing to go overseas and I'm single. I was trying to, th- to come up with like, you know, what was my what, what were my qualities that made me qualified <laughs> to go overseas or at least made me, you know, more qualified than the other women who would want to go overseas. So um, I came up with I, I'm single and I'm childless and therefore I'm expendable and I'll go anywhere you want to send me. And that was the beginning of, uh, of my road, uh, and he told me he laughed, and he said that he, um, had, he knew who I was and that I should get ready to go to Pakistan. And about four months later, I was on a flight to Pakistan. Keep in mind, I had never even been to Europe at the time, I was very <laughs> untraveled. So there I am, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to Pakistan, mm-hmm. going to cover the war on terror. So no what- idea what I was doing. <laughs>
1: So where had you traveled before?
3: I had been to Egypt and um, Jordan because I had a friend who was in the Peace Corps for like a 10 day trip. Um, I'm pausing. Mexico, Canada, does that count? I mean, I always wondered, like, do the border nations count? Yes. I think Mexico I think so. counts. I don't know if Canada counts.
2: I'm from Texas and I have never been outside of the airport in Mexico. Um, so I think
1: it definitely counts because I, living that close, I've never right. even right. <laughs> no yeah. outside. And moving here, when I went to Mexico for the first time, I was like, Wait, this is just over the
3: border. Like <laughs> right. people can just go here whenever they want. It's right. amazing. It's amazing. And then I I'd, I'd been to Brazil. Um and uh Argentina. That's it. Yeah, that's it.
2: Next stop, Pakistan. Yeah, naturally, Of course, of course, yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I like to save the easy countries for later in my life. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and so, like, when I went there, I was was trying to, you know, know what I was doing, so I talked to the correspondent um, who was covering uh, Pakistan for us at the time, the Chicago Tribune, and that was a guy by the name of Uli Schmetzer, and, um, you know, I was very concerned with not getting – cheated at the airport and you know I was asking him like how how much does it cost to go from the airport to the uh, Marriott where I'd be staying and he's like well you shouldn't have to pay more than 300 rupees you know and he's telling me this and he's like using like 1999 prices 2000 prices (laughs) and like there's been inflation since this war happened like it's supply and demand basically so I come out of the airplane you know and I'm feeling really smart you know I change my money, so I've got my rupees, you know. I'm, and I've come out, and you know, there's all these folks, guys gathered around, you know, trying to take me wherever I want to go. And I'm saying, you know, no, I'm not going to pay. I'm going to the merit. I'm not paying more than three hundred. And everybody's just sort of walking away, like no. And there's <laughs> one guy who's like, fine, I'll take you. And he's like so disgusted with me, like it's like fifty, hundred rup- rupees. Let's let's just say it's the equivalent of two dollars, right? That I'm arguing over. You know, I and I'm gonna pay six dollars to go to the Marriott, uh, no matter what. And so, like, I walk over. You know, I walk out to the car with him, and he doesn't even take my bag because he is so (laughs) disgusted. And like, there's it's like this dented up Corolla, and I go to get in, and he just looks at me. He's like, "What? You're gonna drive too?" Because of course I'm going to get into what I think the passenger side is, but it's actually the driver side in Pakistan. Yeah, that was my first journey, and then I met Uli, who who introduced me to everybody as the Tribune's 13-year-old correspondent, <laughs> which I didn't think was fair. I was older than 13, <laughs> but yet now, at this time in my life, years later, I appreciate <laughs>
2: At South by Southwest, where Lolly and I recorded uh, another episode, where we talked to a bunch of ocean conservationists, um, we went to this great talk about gender equality in journalism, which was surprisingly underattended.
3: That is typical. <laughs> I mean, I, I find I, I, like it's... when you do panels like with kick-ass like female foreign correspondents, women show up, and you're like, you're hearing like some of the top journalists yes. of their generation, but you're completely genderizing it, and you're thinking that they don't have something to say, but.
2: Yeah. Kind of goes back to what you were saying about how the Tribune was just sending primarily men. So how do we tell more women's stories, especially in war zones? And why is it important to tell those smaller stories that we're not seeing on the front
3: page that maybe men don't have access to?
1: Or maybe they just don't even see when they're walking around.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, like the way I look at it is there are a lot of different stories to tell in a war zone. And some folks are, you know, if you're a combat photographer, you're attracted to tell the story of combat. And if you're more of a war correspondent, like you want to be in the blood and guts and the fighting, then you're going to go out on embeds and you're going to go to the front lines those were not the stories that interested in me. Uh, I do think there are women who are interested in those stories. So I don't want to completely divide things uh, down gender lines. But I do think that all stories are important. And I kind of find stories that are about dying and war predictable after a while. It's, it's number counts. It's like 10 people died. You know, it's like telling these very tragic stories, but it's about the end of a life and you don't really get any sort of nuance. It's just about fighting. It's just about war. I always found it much in- more interesting to write stories about how people live through war than about how, how people die in war and as part of that like I was very interested in culture stories about like what happened to a country where the internet had been kept out where the West had been kept out where all of a sudden everything comes rushing in like you've got the internet you've got this notion of freedom what does that mean and how does how does a country that like had this youth bulge it still has a youth bulge deal with it Um, those were the sort of stories I really like to tell and you're talking about a country that even at that point had had war for, you know, since 1979, you know, for almost 25 years. When you're telling stories that involve local women,
2: why is it important to share their perspective as well? As opposed to the men who are probably
3: the ones who are out fighting just based on how our country and other countries work. I mean, I think it goes to the whole idea of like how you look at history. And I think for a long time, history has always been the story of wars. Like this war happened here. You can remember this in history class, you know, and it's the history of men. Um, and that is one history, but like I, th- I think that there's a lot of history out there that hasn't necessarily been told. And I think that, you know, as a female correspondent, I found it fascinating to be able to tell the stories of women, which I think are you know, equally important to those of the men. And you know, for me, I didn't just tell those stories, although obviously I would get much more access to the women than male correspondents did. And I, I don't mean to diminish male correspondents. I think some of them did some fabulous stories about the women of Afghanistan. but you know, women were way more comfortable talking to to a woman. Right. You know, they would look at me and they would treat me like, oh, my sister, you know, are you married? Never get married. You know, <laughs> and and like they treated me like I somehow understood their plight, like I had been through their plight. And of course, I it was very foreign to me. But at the same time, I was able to tell their stories much more easily, I think, than that of a a male correspondent. I was also able to tell stories of men there. I think that um, that's why you've got a lot of the best porn correspondents uh, that I knew in Afghanistan were women. And a lot of the people who stayed there longest were, were women, um, whether it was Carlotta Gall of the New York Times or Pamela Constable at the Washington Post or Aaron Baker at Times, Saraya, Sarhadi Nelson at NPR. I mean, all of these are women. And all of these were the correspondents who were there when I was there. It was like this heavily female um, foreign press, which was great, you know. And unlike the movie, there wasn't any sort of, like, weird rivalry between me and anybody else. There, there was no Margot Robbie. No, no. I was like, who's – am I Margot Ro-? And I'm like, dude, you don't know. No, we we, There's a backstabbing involved. You don't want to be Margot Robbie, and you're not that hot. Okay. It
1: was a plot device. Yeah,
3: exactly. You had to have a foil.
1: Um, and so, you know, you were saying how, um, you know, these women would kind of open up to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you, you write about this a lot in your book and sort of the way in which – use like a female journalist were having to n- navigate your way through an Islamic country and like surprisingly you actually sometimes got like a lot of access to quite powerful men. Oh yeah. That like I think a lot of people would assume you wouldn't be able to. And yeah. kind of how did sort of how did that all like, come about and why do you think that is?
3: I think I mean yeah, I got a lot of access to um, you know top men in both Pakistan and and Afghanistan. And I think uh, I think it has to do with like in Afghanistan I think Hamid Karzai, who was the president at the time, was very much like... I wanna give credit to these women who are in my country and show that like, and show that I am not anti-woman and show that Afghans are not anti-women. I think that was a lot of his motivation. With the warlords, with like folks out in the provinces, I think they were just like curious, like who is this random woman running around the countryside? Sure, I'll meet with her. (laughs) I'm curious, you know? And even in Pakistan, like with folks who would be like, death to America, death to America, they'd be like, oh no, you can take off your chattery. When you're with when you're with me, or take off your burqa, you know it, anything that covered your face, and I'd be like, no, no. <laughs> if I had to wear it to get here, I'm gonna wear it now. You're not gonna get to see my face. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that it was a combination of a lot of reasons why people would talk to you, and also I, I've I've found like I mean, even though it's hard to translate humor, right? You know, uh, my my translators, uh, my translator at least in Afghanistan was very funny and could use that to get people to talk. And also, I think that like, even if you don't share language and you're smiling, people tend to see joy in you and they're more likely to talk to you.
2: How beneficial was, I mean, I think it was required um, for what you were doing, but I think a lot of times today, people you know, don't use travel specialists or fixers, um, even when they're traveling on their own. So how important was a translator or a fixer to your daily life? When you were a war correspondent?
3: Well, when you're a war correspondent, (laughs) it's everything. It's everything. Without Farouk, I wouldn't have been able to do any of the stories that I did. Well, except if I'm talking to the American officials, I could do those stories. Um, Or if I had to do stories where people were simply speaking English, I could do those stories. And I mean, there's a real movement in foreign correspondence now that instead of having, like, you know, your foreign correspondent swoop in and do stories that you hire local folks to do stories who speak all the languages. And I think that's great. You know, I think that's great. But I think that there's always going to be room for folks who know how to write and know how to tell a story um, for people back home, um, as long as you're uh, properly respectful of the country that you're in, which is key. Is that construction you guys have, or is there a photo studio? Yeah, there are photo studios right behind here. There's a drill in the photo studio. It's
2: crazy because sometimes when you take off your headphones, you can't even hear it because the mics just pick it up. Um, But yes, they're probably moving lights around next door.
1: Or it's like Rihanna is in there. Like sometimes it will just be some like batshit celebrity.
2: (laughs) We're like, can you turn your music down? Thank you so much, (laughs) so much. for doing a podcast.
1: I had a question. Oh, yeah. Um, So, you know, the three of us are sitting here, um, all journalists, and kind of know the ins and outs of how these things work. And I I think, you know, a lot of listeners probably don't really know actually what a fixer is Mm -hmm. and, like, what that process is. So could you explain a bit about, you know, you land in this country, you have to cover this thing. What
0: next?
3: Right. Well, it depends. Like, sometimes when you're a, a journalist you go someplace and you have somebody who's on staff. Frukes, the local journalist slash fixer that I worked with, who I worked with in Afghanistan, was, um, he was a staff member of the Tribune, right? So he was always gonna be there. He would meet me at the airport, he would, um, you know, ride with me to wherever I was staying at the time. I had a driver and his job as a fixer um, was to basically arrange interviews, Help me come up with story ideas. Uh, you know, we would talk about politics, talk about different things. We'd often drive through the city right when I got there to see if I spotted anything that seemed new to me. That's how I came up with doing a story about like pl- plastic surgery in Afghanistan. Don't try it. Um, <laughs> and um yeah, they had like a hair club for Afghan men, and I was like, I don't even want to know what you're <laughs> using. Um, what does that mean? And <laughs> yeah. and um, so, so and you'd come up with story ideas, and then like during the interview itself, he would he would translate for you, and he would just try to convince people to talk to you, and that was basically it. And also, he would help me with cultural things, like I'd say, Is this accurate? I mean, unfortunately. You end up treating like a fixer as if they're like all knowing, sort of like what kind of trees are those? And he'd be like, I don't know what kind of trees. That I'm not like a tree specialist. <laughs> okay, great. Right. That's right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, and uh, so yeah, yeah. That's the job of a fixer. And like when you have somebody who you actually work with a lot, it's great. But like there were situations where I had to go, for instance, cover, you know, the tsunami in uh, Sri Lanka. And, uh, you know, well, it was, it was based out of Indonesia. It was in 2004. It was the day after Christmas and I was going to Sri Lanka cause it was um, a place that was very badly hit and I'd been in Southern India and I just basically, you know, covered a bit of it in Southern India and then hopped on a plane to Sri Lanka, you know, and I'm like one of, w- one of two people on the plane and like the flight attendants are just like, why are we flying here? <laughs> and they were really concerned about me. Who's meeting you at the airport? And I said, you know, I don't know. Um, Actually, nobody is meeting me at the airport. We had nobody in Sri Lanka for me to work with. We had not been there in a number of years, and we had no local person. And keep in mind, this is a huge news story. So the bigger folks, like the New York Times, Washington Post, all these folks had local people who worked for them. Anybody else was already scooped up by the BBC, by CNN. And so I'm flying in and like the flight attendants are so worried about me. They're handing me like, you know, all this water and all these (laughs) airplane boxes of food. So I'm like leaving there with like my computer. I don't have a hotel. I have nothing, right? And all the hotels are booked up, right? All the fancy hotels are booked up because they've pulled in all the tourists from other parts of Sri Lanka. They've taken those over. You know, all the other things, like other folks are booked up. Everybody is booked up, and um, so like this, there's somebody at the travel desk who's looking through things, like and it's like, okay, no, 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 and calling all these hotels for me, and the only place she can get me into is like um, a hotel where, uh, well, uh, it was like eight dollars a night, something like that. So I thought, okay, this will be great. We get there, and I very quickly figure out, oh, this is a prostitute hotel awesome. So (laughs) can I leave my computer here? Or is this room going to get like busted into? And is all my stuff going to get stolen? I'm allergic to mold. There's mold on the walls, you know, and I'm just like, Nope, (laughs) you got to write a story today. And at this point, it is like five, 6pm. I've checked into a hotel. I don't have a fixer. I don't speak the language and I have to write something for the next day. So that like, you know, means that I'm just wandering around the city looking for somebody to speak to me in English. Right. You know, and like somebody does, and it turns out he knows somebody who's a journalist and like, I talked to that person that person's like you cannot stay in this hotel and he's like knows people at the fancy hotels and there's like one half room there that he gets me into and so then he helps me that night and then like you know basically he calls and he's like hey there's this trip and I'm like great and then I do that trip with him and like and then I I'm like oh well, I got to go where the train was pushed off you know by the tsunami so I you know go down there with the army I somehow get in with the army and I come off and there's all this crowd of people waiting for food from this drop off and there's not a lot of food there is a journalist but there's not a lot of food um, and you know I'm just like going um, English 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 <laughs> you know and this lovely young man's like I speak English and I swear to God, he had a vocabulary of like a hundred words of English, but he was great and it was all that I could get. So he like gets me into a hotel and like he was like getting his tourism degree and he takes me around. And it's like, if you read that story of mine, it's the most impressionist story ever because like, you know, it's what I'm seeing. And then a bo- bunch of quotes from people that are like, it was very bad, um, <laughs> you know, and it goes to like, it's great if you can speak the language. And it's like any time that I'm, you know, talking to young journalists who want to be a foreign correspondent, I'm like, like, learn the language, study the language, focus on the place you want to go. Don't do it like I did. I mean, I, you don't have a choice in a, a region like I was in because there are simply so many languages. But man, did I wish that they had, like, you know, that chip, you know, that you, you know, the Star Trek transponder <laughs> thing that, like, it would just instantly translate because language is crucial to communication, obviously.
2: Um, how? So you were just talking about locals, like, obviously playing such an important role when you are traveling on your own for fun now. Um, What role do locals play in your travels because you rely on them so much with your work?
3: Um, You know, when I travel for fun lately, it's almost like I, I I mean, I I interact with locals like when I go into stores, but it's not like I have like a fixer in restaurants. I talk (laughs) to people, you know, especially if they speak English, Um, you know, and I interact with people and I'll meet people and I'll you know, have a drink with them, but it's not like I have somebody with me all the time um, because that takes away some of the joy of travel. Uh, you know, I I do like having um, somebody to explain things to me. If I go to a historical museum, I like to know what things are saying. I, I was in Cuba, and, you know, I went to the m- museum in Havana. That's like the Cuban Revolutionary History Museum. Fascinating, but not a lot of explanation in English, <laughs> which you really cannot complain about when yeah. you're in Cuba. Yeah,
2: yeah. I have been to that museum and that is that is a true thing. I speak Spanish and I was there when I was studying abroad and, and was walking around with all my friends. Okay, this is what this yeah. says and like let's go to the next plaque and this is what this says. Yeah. And we'll go to the and next And I was one. like,
3: those are really tiny pants with blood <laughs> on You know. I feel like I know what that means, but who knows? Exactly. Exactly. I'm pretty sure somebody was injured wearing those pants, but I don't know. <laughs> who? We'll never we'll never find out. <laughs> right. And that's the crazy thing is
2: that I feel like in, in the West, so many of us are so used to seeing the same letters reorganized. And then you go somewhere like Japan or Russia and you're just like, I can't even like guess. Right. Like, I have no, yeah.
3: I have no idea. Um, I, pr- I prided myself on, on learning the uh, numbers at least in, uh, in, in Farsi uh, Dari, so that like I could I could read license plates or phone numbers. I mean, that was a skill. Well, you know, I was like, does is that license plate this? And Farouk would be like, yes, small child. You're like, I can that spot it, any car. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: So um, I actually was wondering, in addition to all the locals that you were working with every day and spending time with, you are also spending a lot of time with troops from the U.S. And I don't know if, it, if from other parts of the world as well occasionally um but I was just wondering kind of how um you and other female journalists that were out there with you at the same time like kind of how your interactions went with them and like how we how they treated you
3: Sure. Um, I mean, the troops always treated me fine. They treated yeah. me very nice. Um, but doing embeds raises its own particular, uh, you know, I don't know, dilemmas, ethical dilemmas, moral dilemmas. I mean, um, when the program first came up, it came up during the Iraq War. And that was when, you know, the Pentagon was first like, we, we want to have a very active embed uh, situation, which they had not had um, I don't know if they'd ever had such a formal program. You were able to sort of informally embed during Vietnam, but not the sort of like uh, formal embeds that they set up during Iraq. And the idea was, I think, that like if you're with the, the troops, then you'll tell a more sympathetic story. It's it's a very smart idea. And I think that as a journalist, you've got to be careful that you're not telling a one-sided story and that you also don't fall into the idea of seeing Whoever the local is is the other, and that's the danger the the troops, of course, face because they're in a different country than I am, right? They definitely are in a different country because they're in a place where they have to look at everybody outside – you know, maybe as a potential friend, but like definitely as a potential en- enemy. Like, what do you want from me? What's happening? Um, you know, because they are targets, like, like it or not. When they're going around in hum- Humvees, somebody is not going to be happy that they're there. So it, it does breed this sort of idea of... The other, you know, and um, where they'll they'll like their local translators, but they'll be very fearful of other Afghans and like also like not necessarily knowing that much about local traditions, you know, because I would do things like I would try to wear like a headscarf, you know, under my helmet when I was out with them and just it was stupid, but I was trying to like ride these two cultures, yeah. right? Like my culture, which is definitely American. I'm from Montana and Wyoming. Um, and I, you know, know a lot of folks in the military. Um, and like also having been in Afghanistan for so long, knowing that like if, if I'm in, you know, sort of very rural areas, like it's, it, it's better if I at least try to like come halfway towards the culture to be able to get people to talk to me. Um, And you were were relying when you were with the troops on their fixers or their translators who oftentimes weren't that good. You know, you had like a situation where the troops would be in, you know, a Pashto speaking area and they would have like an Uzbek or a Dari speaker who spoke some Pashto. But I could hear I'm like, oh, my God, you're missing so many words. I knew enough to Mm -hmm. know like you missed that word. You missed that word. And so you had a sense that in some cases the troops didn't even really understand what was being said to them. And it would be like whoever was working with them was just saying things, right, that they were sort of giving the gist, maybe, Um, which was obviously dangerous. Um, And like... I don't know, you know, it, it was always like this thing where you're balancing, like, I, I like these guys. I like talking to them. Um, they wouldn't less, like necessarily want to take women out to the front lines. And I was told this specifically, because like, the whole idea is, you know, if a male journalist is out there, that person made this decision, and I won't feel like I need to protect them in, in the event of a firefight. But if a female journalist is out there, you know, my guys, my people are probably going to want to protect the woman just because of chivalry, because of ingrained things. So I would find that I would get different sort of access to the troops. I'd get a lot of time in the base. I'd get a lot of time talking to them. And I think for a lot of them, of course, there were women as well, but there weren't a lot. And a lot of the troops would, like, talk to me about things they probably shouldn't have been talking to a journalist about. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking notes, and they're telling me about – You know, the many deployments they've had, the toll it's taken on their marriages, the fact that they're getting divorced, even about drug use. And I'm like, man, I'm a journalist. One was talking to me about how he was being bullied by the other, you know, soldiers. And you're just like, oh, this is a lot. You know because those are great stories but um, you know what do you owe to somebody to explain like you realize you're talking to a journalist and I decided I really had to treat it exactly like I would treat it if I was with Afghans which is it is about the story I don't care if they don't like the story Um, I'm writing what I see and that definitely got me in trouble at some points.
1: Why do you think they opened up so much?
3: I don't know. I, I think it's because I was a woman. I was a little bit o- older than them. I'm sympathetic. You know, um, I'm a good listener. I mean, if I, I don't really think I could do my job, normally I'm not talking this much. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> um, I have a sense of humor. I smile, and like people just like it's been that way my entire life. People will open up to me, um, but I don't think I was somehow special in that. I I think that it was something about like the older sister thing. And I haven't been able to talk. I can't talk about this to the guys. I wouldn't talk to the women on the base about this because, you know, maybe I want to, like, whatever. Or, you know, I don't want it to stick around. And that's part of it as well. Like, this is a person who comes in and then she leaves. Right? This is a person I don't know. This is a person who's asking me questions and wants to listen. Um, And I'm just going to spill everything. And I won't have to face it because she'll be gone soon.
1: And it's also nice when someone asks you questions.
3: It is. It is. Look at me. I'm just terrible <laughs> diarrhea. You're having a great time. <laughs> sort of
1: segueing slightly, but um, so a few years ago, I saw that you had written about um, female correspondents having a code of silence yep. um, when it comes to sexual harassment on the job, and given the past six months, year, sort of of reckoning or whatever you want to call it, I was wondering sort of how much that's changing or what people are talking about within those circles um, has there been a movement at
3: all well I, I think so but I think that that wasn't because of anything that I wrote um, I wrote it after uh, what happened to Laura Logan and I think Laura Logan really started leading that movement by talking about what happened to her without apology and without any embarrassment this is what happened to her and it was horrible right and And that's obviously not sexual harassment. It was flat out assault, and I think that it. She opened the door, and other folks opened the door. Men men, like this journalist in Pakistan opened the door about what had happened to him, how he was he was raped um, when he was held by uh, when he was held in Pakistan. And I think this, and Lauren Wolf has also done a lot of work on this, and I think there has been a movement. Is everything perfect? Do people feel like they can say things? Do women feel like they can say things? Or even men, because it really does also happen to men. Um, not, not everybody's going to say something, but I think that the door is much more open now than it was, say, when I was posted over there, because the whole fear and the whole reason like I, I was thinking about it was in large part because of Laura, but also because I, when I was over there I never would have said anything to my bosses I never would have said oh god I got grabbed at this protest oh god I got pinched oh this fixer in Pakistan you know who I was calling for help you know like late at night was like I'll come to you now you know and like all the sort of like little nitpicky things that happened every day and certainly many women had much worse things happen to them than I did um, you know I would never have said anything like that to my bosses because I never wanted him to say, um, and they were always men, my immediate bosses. I never wanted them to feel like, oh, um, we need to bring her home. Um, you know, what were they going to say? Do you need a hug? You know, um, I wanted, I, I, you know, when we were over there, and when you're over there, you can't just be like, um, you know a female correspondent and like use that as some. I couldn't get it I'm a female you have to be tougher than the guys not just as strong as you have to be tougher and um, not make any apologies about it so there's no way on earth I would have ever said anything about any of that stuff to a boss you handle it you write your stories and you move on to the next story and that's not just about like sexual harassment or anything like that it's also about the things you see you know a a severed head you know um, a going through and seeing stacks of bodies in the tsunami you don't you don't sit there and talk to your boss as like i feel a little bit emotionally upset right now i had to clean a person off of my shoe you don't talk about that right you just deal with it what would you say to
2: to women who want to follow in your footsteps or want to get into kind of the hard side of of writing on the road
3: well i mean the job that I had, it's there, – there are jobs that exist like mine. I mean, obviously, the Times has correspondence, the Post has correspondence, the Journal does, and, you know, the wire services. But, I mean, I was working for a newspaper where I didn't have to cover the daily news. And, like, I could just do takeouts all the time, and that job really doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so if you really are passionate about this, my advice is to young people, you got to pick a region and, and focus in on it and learn about it. Try to learn the language, try to embed as much as you can, um, in a place and pick a place that's not necessarily a war zone, pick a place that's not getting very much coverage. You know, I used to tell people Yemen, but now it's too dangerous. I would never tell somebody for that to be their first assignment, um, And figure it out, but you don't want to go to a place where there's a lot of competition and where the only way you can distinguish yourself is by getting into danger. And that is definitely what happened in Syria. Um, And it hasn't happened much lately because of, I think, because of the fallout of everything that happened. But I think in the very beginning, it was like, look, I'm a freelancer. I want to make a mark. I want to, you know, get better strings. I want to get more money. I want to be more recognized. So therefore, I got to go to the places that nobody else will go to. And I got to do it on the cheap. And I don't have an organization behind me. And we saw what happened with that. Um, and it seems like, you know, it, it seems like it's not happening as often anymore, um, frankly, because so many areas are no go over there. But I do think that the danger exists in other places. And, you know, I, I think that like organizations that take these freelance pieces. And some of them stepped up. Like I know the Post has um, with freelancers, uh, and I know the Times has. But like you, you have to like you owe something to the people who are doing this work for you. Um, And you know, at a certain point, and I know a lot of folks, a lot of the bigger organizations have done this. You owe saying, "We're not going to take that story from you because it's simply too dangerous, and we don't want to be encouraging you." to take that level of danger. Um, But we're in this weird sort of financial situation right now with journalism where nobody has figured out how to pay for for foreign news, right? Um, And, you know, only a certain number of outlets do it, which means that we're not getting the variety that we used to get.
2: I think it's so interesting. You know, I have friends in the U.S. who are journalists who watch primarily international television because Mm -hmm. they find that coverage is better is there anywhere or anyone you think is doing it really well international coverage
3: well I think I mean I don't this is gonna really be embarrassing I don't watch much TV Um, I don't have a TV I read a lot I read the times I read the post um, I read the wires Uh, I can't afford all of that plus the journal um, but I try to read my friends stories in the journal (laughs) sorry sorry Wall Street Journal um, you know, and I listen to listen to a lot of podcasts and uh, NPR all the time and BBC. But when I used to watch more TV, um, I would definitely watch uh, either BBC or Al Jazeera English. I really liked Al Jazeera English. Um, not for obviously, you couldn't really trust it for some of its co- coverage that was close to home because there was a definite bias there. But they did documentaries um, in other parts of the world, even in, in the States that were better than a lot of. Uh, things I saw, and, and they spent more money and more time on subjects than you would see, like on CNN or um, any of the you know American networks.
1: Now you're back working in Boring. New York, yeah, <laughs> living living the normal life. Um, where I you? don't know if New York is a normal <laughs> life. I would not disagree so with that. That, that. <laughs> is proof of me in the bubble,
3: right? right. <laughs> are you traveling anywhere next? Uh, yeah, where am I going next? Right now, I'm finishing a project I've been working on for more than a year, so I can't really even think about travel, but I'm <laughs> definitely, I've got a trip that's planned to go to a pal's 40th birthday. She's having it in Ireland. That's my next trip That'll that I'm be doing. a blast. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you can find Kim's work all over the internet, um, and you can also find her book, The Taliban Shuffle, anywhere you Probably buy books. Um, where can people find you and contact you social media wise?
3: Well, um, I'm on Twitter at Kim underscore Bar- Barker and I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. But like it's hard. I mean, managing all this stuff is like a full time job. So if anybody wants to be a free assistant, I'm kidding. You can't actually do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I occasionally tweet. Yeah, and you can always, I will always respond to you if you tweet at me, and I'll be like, ah, oh, I'm horrible at this.
1: <laughs> but you'll get a notification, which right. will be very
3: rewarding. Yeah, yeah Exactly. I Follow me Kate. on Twitter. <laughs> I pay attention to my numbers.
2: <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm at oh, hey There Mayor. And I'm at Lale Hannah. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon.
4: Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. I'm
0: Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.